No-code and low-code solutions have been getting a lot of attention lately, and for a good reason. These tools allow businesses to create custom applications without the need for expensive and time-consuming development cycles. And as a result, they can speed up the process of bringing a new product or service to market. And since no-code and low-codes are usually easy to use if they're built well, they are ideal for businesses that don't have a team of developers and need to get stuff done quickly. So if you've been hearing a lot about no-code and low-code solutions lately, now you'll know why. For many non-technical founders, the idea of coding a solution from scratch can be a little bit scary. And thankfully, there are so many different solutions out there now that you can build complex applications without a lot of coding knowledge. These solutions typically involve a drag and drop interface and pre-built blocks, which makes it possible to create sophisticated applications with minimal to no coding. In most cases, these solutions are also much cheaper and faster to deploy than a custom coded solution. So they are an ideal option for both technical and non-technical founders who want to get their product to market quickly and efficiently and start testing the business rather than paying for an expensive development team and spending a ton of time. Usually the plan with no and low code solutions is to eventually throw away the solution and bespokely build a solution when the time comes. But some businesses are getting huge results without a total rebuild. For example, MakerPad is an app that teaches entrepreneurs to save time and increase their efficiency by building no code projects. So this one is a little bit meta. And it generated over $200,000 in less than a year with a no code stack, including Webflow, Airtable and Zapier. Another example that started with no code and continued in a hybrid fashion of both no code and code is Coins, spelled Q-O-I-N-S, which helps people pay off debt. It raised $750,000 on its no code solution in investment and still brags about how they leverage no code wherever possible to speed up the process and development. Currently, they have received a total funding of $2.3 million, so I'm excited to see where they take it. So if you've been thinking of trying out no-code or low-code solutions, there's probably no better time. And while I was going down this rabbit hole to get better accustomed with these tools, I got an introduction to today's guest. And today's guest is a handsome fellow called Simon Curran. He is a founder and a CEO of an app-building platform called NoLoco. NoLoco helps you instantly create customer portals, partner apps, and internal tools from your Airtable or Google Sheets. NoLoco have one of the most beautiful and simple interfaces on the market for building a data-driven app with no code. They have been through Y Combinator and are growing their team, so Simon is full of useful advice around product, no code, and pivoting business ideas. So let's jump into the episode and hear from the main man himself. Welcome to Startups with Niall Marr. This is a show that covers a wide variety of business and startup topics, but ultimately the goal is to give you tips, strategies, and advice to grow your business and hopefully entertain you along the way. You won't just be learning from me. I'll also be chatting with founders and other interesting people from the startup world and sharing their conversations with you too. Thanks for listening and let's grow together. First off, Simon, thanks a million for joining me. And it would be great if you just introduced yourself before we share with everyone the wonders of low-code and no-code and all of the stuff that you're working on. Yeah, sure. And it's great to be here, Nam. Thanks very much for having me. So my name's Simon. I am co-founder of NoLoco, 
Enoloco is a no-code platform for teams to build web apps from their business data. So if you have data in spreadsheets or tools like Airtable or Google Sheets, you can basically connect that to our platform and we'll automatically build an app for you around that data. So if you're a business looking to share information with customers or your internal team or partners, um, we can basically help you build you know, customer portals, internal tools, partner apps without actually writing any code yourselves. So yeah, we started working on that last summer is when we went full time when we got accepted into the Y Combinator Accelerator program. We can, of course, go into a bit more detail on that if you like now. But yeah, before that, I was basically a product manager myself. I worked at a couple of different uh, tech companies here in Ireland and in the UK. So I started off working at Shazen TripAdvisor, then Revolut. And before coming back to Ireland that near the start of the pandemic and working for Flipdish, and then, yeah, basically went full-time on Noloco there last year. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. And besides that, I'm from Dublin. I studied business and economics in university in Trinity, graduated from that in 2018. And yeah, that's a bit about me. So you have plenty of history in product and product strategy and uh, the degree behind it as well to make it work. I guess that's where I'm often feel like an imposter when it comes to business and things is I just, I don't have a, a degree really. So I'm often looking at things and go, I'm just going to figure it out. I'll, you know, as we go yeah, along. I, I don't think you necessarily um, need one, but yeah, you know, I think university is um, really good for you know, probably maturing and learning about like different things, but you know, in terms of what I studied specifically in like business and economics, I don't think it necessarily prepared me for like startup life or anything like that. And certainly very few of my, my, my peers went into tech or similar roles that I went into, but yeah, definitely learned a lot from the experience overall. Yeah. And Chris from uh, Flipdish is the one who recommended you because he was on recently as well. Yeah. He had nothing but great things to say about you and also very heartbroken that you left. So obviously you were doing good work in Flipdish as well, which is awesome. And by the looks of things, fantastic work with No Local because I see it popping up more and more. I don't know if it's one of those things, as soon as you fixate on something, it just seems to be everywhere. I'm really excited to really figure out what kind of areas you're targeting with this, who's using it and where you're finding most value right now and where you're going with it really. Yeah, sure. So I uh, can touch on some of those things there. So our customer base at the moment is quite broad, I would say. So a variety of customers in various different industries. Most of our customers are based in the US, I would say. So probably around 65% right now. And that's by no means like we didn't set out for it to be like that. It just so happened, I'd say. Most kind of inbound organic kind of leads we would have gotten would have come from the US. And variety of different industries. So, you know, we have people in kind of real estate businesses, financial lenders to some kind of agencies and very much client facing businesses and uh, some startups as well. So very much a variety, which I think is quite common amongst no code platforms that, you yeah. know, you probably get some that are quite niche and quite like specific around a particular vertical, but a lot would be quite broad because fundamentally what it comes down to is similar use cases whereby people want to share data either with their team or, you know, external stakeholders like customers or partners, and they want to do it in a secure way. That's obviously quite a common thing, regardless of what industry you're necessarily in. But yeah, that's a little bit about, yeah, some of our customers. And yeah, it was really towards the end of last year that we launched the current version of the product, which really tries to make it easy to build a web app around your data. We took away some of the flexibility, I guess, and some of the kind of styling options to make it a simpler experience. And I think that's really resonated with SMBs who, you know, they might not necessarily be very technical themselves, but, you know, it is empowering these people to build web apps without writing any code. 
We do have some developers as well. And I know you, you're obviously a very, very technical yourself, Niall. And we do actually have people who pan code using the platform as well. And they love it because they can get up and running a lot quicker than having to do a lot of maybe infrastructure and boilerplate kind of stuff themselves. But yeah, it resonates with both those who can code and obviously those that can't as well. It's one thing I struggle to consult on. It's like nearly like a blind spot for me at the moment that I'm trying to fix because a lot of people ask me about say MVPs and building MVPs and what should I build and I often get asked what about no code or low code solutions should I look at this and I'm always just kind of like I'm not sure I guess so if you can build it then yes but I haven't used enough of it to know how great this is but even from talking to Chris and seeing what you're doing there I can see that people are building substantial products on these things as well and scaling up until they really, even if they need something different, because sometimes you don't, you think you need a lot more than you do a lot of times, because usually it is just sharing data and editing data. Yeah, that's it. And I think we are seeing a lot of startups nowadays starting out looking to build something on a no-code platform. And then everyone probably has in their minds that sometime they will graduate, if you like, or move on or maybe build internally. But when it comes to it, I'd say a lot probably do just end up sticking because Building stuff internally is very difficult, very time consuming. It'll take ages. There there will be issues, just as there probably are issues that you deal with with a no-code platform if it doesn't quite fit your needs. But yeah, what I would say is that in terms of our platform specifically, yes, there are some startups building like MVPs with no loco, but in general, our platform really works best if you have data and there's data you specifically want to share. So Let's say for a real estate company, they have data on like properties or maybe like lenders have like loan requests and borrowers and things like that. Whereas a startup often doesn't actually have any data. So they're starting off with like from scratch, you know, having to come up with a data model and stuff. So, you know, we don't necessarily seek out those types of um, customers building MVPs because starting up is hard and they are probably the most likely to churn as well uh, from a platform like ours. So yeah, it's more kind of established SMBs that... Uh, would be the kind of customers that we'd ideally uh, be attracting. And that kind of brings me in. I was going to ask what's different on your platform, but I guess it is using sources of data as the database for all of this stuff. It drive, It's driven by data versus... I, have, I haven't seen anything else that does it like this, really. Or maybe there is. I, I guess don't give your competitors a plug anyway. Just screw those guys. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing else exists if you want data. But is there anything else that I'm not seeing that you find is building that moat for you or that competitive edge in this space? Yeah, sure. So I think it's, there's definitely a lot of different tools in the no-code space and people have taken lots of different approaches altogether. Some of the most kind of popular kind of household name like tools out there would be something like Webflow, for example, that's amazing for building like really beautiful websites and landing pages and blogs, but it's all really around static data. So it's a bit of a leap to then turn a web flow site into a web app, for example, that people log into and see their own information, etc. And again, lots of flexibility, lots of styling options. It's a bit too much and a bit overwhelming for a lot of our customers that really just need something a bit simpler. And then, yeah, when it comes to you know web apps specifically, there's platforms like Bubble that would be very popular for people building MVPs, for example. But again, a huge amount of flexibility, but also then a large learning curve. And that is definitely something that people struggle with. Like they think that no code might mean like no learning or no no steep learning curve, et cetera. So that's definitely something that I'd say people struggle with with quite a few platforms. So coming back to Naloco then, because as you say, 
the data is the foundation for your app. So once you have that connected, whether you want to use what we call NoLoco collections, which is our basically internal data storage and upload your kind of CSV spreadsheet data to there, or you want to connect an existing Google Sheets or Airtable and ultimately other data sources as well. We definitely see ourselves as like a backend agnostic platform. So ultimately we'll be able to connect to many different databases, data sources, software tools, et cetera. Um, that, you know, we'll do a lot of the work for you then. So we'll automatically build your web app around that data, which basically means that the user gets up and running really quickly and they can actually see their app in front of them almost straight away. And then of course can configure it to their liking. Yeah, that's it's so powerful as well. I'm, I've been thinking it more so as well as the, the product manager and me thinks about like, how this how I can just share things with people in a nice way and not just give a spreadsheet to people and make it look like smoke and mirrors that I've done a ton of work for a client yeah. or whatever else in a sense. Yeah. Is that where this came from? Or how did this get conceived really? In the sense yeah. of where did you see the whole that you're like, or maybe you've pivoted since you've been in Y Combert. I don't really know. So what what yeah. got you into this mess in the, to begin with? <laughs> yeah, so so we have definitely, um, so we've been on our own journey for sure. So I'd say we probably pivoted twice or three times along the way. And, you know, what I'd say to anyone starting up is that the chances are whatever kind of notion or idea you have in your head, you know, the chances are you're going to have to change direction a couple of times before you really get towards product market fit. Uh, so we actually started as a much more flexible tool and it comes back to what I was chatting about there regarding flexibility. So to build both websites and web app, it was very, very ambitious. We can internally refer to the project as the GWAB boats, the greatest web app builder of all time. And it certainly wasn't that in the end, but it was a very ambitious project and to build both websites and web apps. So different types of applications, if you like, and also just have a huge amount of styling options, et cetera. So we basically launched that on Product Hunt about two weeks into the Y Combinator Accelerator program and very quickly saw, okay, we're just not getting the engagement here. Like people just aren't grasping the learning curve and it's just too much. So very quickly decided, right, we need to change direction. We're both pretty excited about uh, working on client portals then. So that was the, the next phase was, okay, we'll strip it back. We'll take away some of the kind of flexibility, make it simpler, easier to use and really focus on those wanting to, uh, those inclined facing businesses so they could centralize their communication, file sharing, messaging, billing. So that was the next thesis. And what we kind of learned then was that it was still seen as somewhat of a nice to have perhaps versus using just email and for communicating with clients and that kind of thing. What we, one of the best insights we got from that really was that what people were fundamentally trying to do is share data. They want to share data either internally or externally with their partners, et cetera. So we basically revamped the product to essentially focus purely on that side of things. And it broadened the scope and like the types of customers that we'd attract as well. So since we launched that towards the end of last year, probably November, December last year, we saw that take off really well. We've been growing really quickly since then, kind of hitting consistently hitting our growth targets as well, which is great. And so, yeah, we were definitely on our own journey. It took some time. They're definitely very kind of not dark moments, but, you know, tough times as well over the past year since we went full time when things weren't working out. And it is quite difficult in those periods, but I'm very happy now in the path we're on and things are definitely heading in the right direction. I love the, the fact you talk about the dark moments, because I think a lot of times from the outside, people just see, oh, this person's doing really well. They must really have their shit together. There's no problems. They're just, they just have it. And I think more people should be open to sharing 
that it's not all plain and easy and it's okay to to fail lots of times and it's it's the only way to improve is to fail lots and lots and lots of times yeah totally and it's one of the things that we did from the very beginning so i started doing kind of founder updates on a weekly basis now it's bi-weekly so it's it's a private mailing list but anyone really can sign up to it and yeah we shared very transparently about when things were going well when things weren't going well when now we'd say apply to Y Combinator the first time and didn't get in, the impact that had. And there's lots of bad moments. We definitely have to take the highs with the lows as well. It definitely overall, despite any kind of difficult moments, overall is just like an amazing experience. But yeah, it's, it's certainly not plain sailing every day. That's for sure. You touched off it there. Getting into Y Combinator, not getting into Y Combinator. I think most people don't get into Y Combinator, full stop. Yeah. And it does not mean you're not going to be successful either. I know no, definitely it's, it's the... At the moment, anyway, it is the accelerator. So anyone that gets in there, it feels like it's like royalty, really. I'd love to know what you could share with us about the Y Combinator experience and how that went and how it helped you, if it helped you at all. I hope it did yeah. with all the, with yeah. all the uh, stuff that's said about it. So yeah, what's your experience been like? Yeah, sure. So we were very keen to apply for Y Combinator at the start. And obviously, you know, um, it's great to be going you know full-time in something with some funding as well so Y Combinator gave $125,000 which is a pretty standard kind of accelerator terms I guess but we'd also known quite a few different startups that had gone through the program so some of our friends from here in Ireland and and my co-founder Dara worked at Inscribe uh, a startup that went through Y Combinator like 2018 I think um before working on Noloco so you know we were very much aware of how great the program could be and we're pretty excited to apply we applied first time didn't get in but at that stage we had very little we had no traction really we, it was hypothetically we will be getting customers soon they can see through that they interview tons of startups every single day if you don't have really concrete um proof or validation it's quite unlikely you'll get in and uh, but we managed to make significant progress then by the next time we applied and managed to get in we revamped our pitch if you like made it more focused etc and that definitely helped but yeah, the program itself was great. We did fully remote. I'm not sure if now the program's always going to be remote. Or I'm not actually sure at all. But it was remote when we did it. And so we're just doing it from our homes here in Dublin. And it worked out fine in terms of time difference. You know, we do our standard work day and then there might be some workshops and things in the evening. But yeah, overall learned a lot, I would say, from the group partners and mentors and then also the other startups as well. And I think the biggest thing was probably the kind of mentality that came with the you know, the startups in the accelerator that everyone there has a certain ambition to be world beaters, if you like, and to try to become a billion dollar company. Uh, so being in that kind of environment and you know, setting those very ambitious targets in terms of growth, et cetera, that's probably not something that we would have necessarily got elsewhere. So I think that was probably the, the biggest thing for me. Obviously, being in that environment is huge. I often complain here in Dublin, especially that people aren't ambitious enough, but that's just my own ego that drives me and what I want out of life as well. So I love hearing that and meeting really ambitious people and people who, as you said, world beaters. It's, it's very interesting, but is there any technical advice or something that just like set off fireworks for you when you heard during the course that really changed how you think about business or? Was there yeah. any moments like that? I'm sure there were several over the months, but... Yeah, it's funny. So what I'd say is that we obviously pivoted very early on in the batch, and then you're looking to your mentors. Like, you're assigned basically different group partners who are looking after 
maybe about 70 companies between around three of them or so that are in your kind of group, if you like, and, you know, be trying to get like their advice and things, but really it does come down to your yourselves. Ultimately, you have to be the ones that are proactive and trying to move things forward. You can get all the advice in the world and there's never going to be that kind of silver bullet advice that you're looking for that'll solve all of your problems. But yeah, it's probably the main thing was that we managed to iterate pretty quickly and from probably the second week in June, we decided to shut down our first thing that I think is near the end of July. Then we had our second one out, which meant that by the kind of end of the program and the demo day, we had at least some kind of traction, which it would have been bad if we not. But yeah, it's hard to pinpoint specific things, but overall, definitely great learning experience. It must have been terrifying to just shut something down as well at the start of this, really. What what was the process there? Did you just turn it off or? Yeah, so we I know, so it was basically our first builder. And then my co-founder, Dara, worked on basically a totally separate kind of environment, if you like, and spinning up a totally separate kind of builder application. But we were running our own website with our first, <laughs> with our first kind of product at the time. So I can't remember exactly when we shut it down, like properly sunsetted it, but we, we definitely canceled our customer subscriptions and that kind of thing, whichever, however many we had at the time, we, we definitely like canceled them. And I think we were both probably quite relieved. It was definitely maybe a hard decision at the time, but you know yourself when it just doesn't look like it's working. And yeah. there's a certain... I guess, battle between, you know, think, oh, maybe you just have to be persistent and stay at it. Or it's like, is this fundamentally just not working? And I think there's probably a lot of founders out there who are, are avoiding making that decision and thinking like, maybe I just need to stick at this longer. Whereas in reality, maybe you should be doing something more productive or trying to change it up a bit. Yeah. And that's, that's a really interesting way of putting it as well, because I think I, I've seen a lot of people that get, I suppose, just distracted by a very few customers and they're like oh i got some customers so therefore i can get more customers that's it yeah did you have targets or something you put in place to just say hey if we don't hit these benchmarks we know it's not good enough or did you just look at the, the data as it came and said look we have to make a decision now yeah it's really interesting so i think the first time for our first product and when we launched that on product hunt i was kind of looking every day at like the the signups that we got from it then like okay, how many of these actually like built something and like how many of them interact in a meaningful way so there definitely was a quantitative aspect out there when i was like okay three out of 75 people engaged in a meaningful way with the platform like that's not great or you know something like that so there was that quantitative aspect but what i would say is really in the very early days you could very much over optimized for like metrics and like putting in place analytics tools and all that. Whereas really it comes down to intuition. It's like, is this working or not? Like it's, it's fairly black and white, whether it's working to any extent. Now, I think it, it probably gets a little bit harder. As you say, if you have a little bit of success, then it starts to get a little bit harder. And I'd say for the second kind of pivot, then we did start to get some customers. Now we, we retained pretty much all of those customers as well when we revamped the product another time because fundamentally it still worked for them basically it was more of a, a change in approach rather than a change of emphasis in terms of the overall builder rather than those specific client-centric modules if you like but yeah definitely would be difficult when you get to stage maybe making a couple hundred dollars a month or a couple of thousand dollars a month okay this is it but is there is there a path to actually growing that month on month very significantly so yeah, i think that's a harder space for sure that's a harder yeah. decision to make that's a tough pill to swallow as well. And being able to say, well, we have to go back to zero to reduce the friction long term. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. difficult. I don't know many people that have done that. So 
more power to you because that is it's, it's just counterintuitive to a lot of people they see money and they want to just stack on top of that money yeah that's a great mindset you've got because greed would probably get in the way of most people when making decisions like that are you enjoying the podcast just so you know most people will find this show through sharing if you have a friend that you think would like this show too open the app tap that share button and send them a real quick text this will really help the podcast out to grow and find new listeners Thanks for listening. Now, let's get back to the show. What was the biggest learning curve for you then going from product management to being a founder now and being responsible for making all the money yourself and not spending other people's money? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so definitely a big learning curve, I would say. And the main thing is, I guess, the non-technical co-founder or I guess the CEO type co-founder is that you're definitely doing lots of things in different areas that you've probably never done before. So I'd never necessarily done sales before. Fundraising, of course, never did that before. Now spending a fair bit of my time on hiring. Um, and then you're also doing lots of admin kind of stuff and both like the financial and legal side as well. So there is a whole bucket of stuff there that as a product manager, I basically would have pretty much never done. What's funny then is that maybe despite being trained as a product manager, if you like, very little of my work besides kind of customer support would be on the product side. So I'm lucky that my co-founder Dara is very, very strong on in terms of product, great kind of product sense and really good design skills as well. Whereas maybe not all engineers would have the kind of skills he has. So I can almost step away from that side a little bit. But yeah, I'd say there's lots in both sales and fundraising, I'd say would be the um, probably two biggest and arguably the most important areas as well that have to upskill in. Yeah. Are you doing any courses or anything at the moment to try and fill some of those voids or because I like I've I stacked on some Udemy courses on like startup law and stuff like that because I was just, I didn't have an idea. So I, I'm here always adding things to my Udemy. Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah. So the other day I basically got an online course on Udemy myself as well around uh, like paid ads, for example. I started started and it's very difficult to make time to come back to these things. I was like going to have to specifically put in my calendar, but then other things take priority. So yeah, there's definitely stuff like that. And I think it is a challenge as well. They always say as a startup founder, you should only hire in roles that you've specifically done yourself. The sales side, for example, um, where we've just hired a solutions engineer who's joining us in around a week or so. Uh, and we're really excited to have them come on board. But fortunately, a lot of the work that we anticipate they'll be doing, I've been doing myself, whether it's like sales, onboarding, customer demo, support, helping build apps, whatever. It's stuff that I've very much been doing. It is something we'll have to very actively think about then and say we're looking at you know performance marketing or something in the future it's an area like i don't necessarily know about so ideally i'd upscale to a certain level that i at least will be able to gauge okay is this person really good or are they just talking very basic stuff that seems like rocket science to me because i know nothing but yeah it is it's hard to make time for some of those courses and things for sure that is a real it's a constant it's a constant game of not getting blinded by bullshit isn't it <laughs> <laughs> especially in hiring in different areas i don't envy you having to jump around that it's a lot of mental gymnastics trying to do that the hiring side has been um pretty fun so far and you know the the people we've got on board so we had uh, two engineers join us in february so matt and niall 
and they've been great. They're really experienced guys and just been able to hit the ground running. So we're super, super fortunate with them. And I guess, you know, both Dara, my co-founder and myself, like Dara is an engineer. So obviously is very comfortable in that area. I was a PM. So, you know, I was working with engineers for several years before Norloco. So it's very much kind of our comfort zone, I would say. And you know, fundamentally what an engineer's role is. So yeah, it's, it'll be more interesting in the future when we are more challenging, I should say, when we expand out to different roles that yeah, we've never necessarily done before. Yeah. And you're, you're hiring right now. You said to me before the call as well. Yeah, that's it. So we're looking for software engineers at the moment. Uh, so we're actively interviewing right now, but you know, the application is still uh, very much open. So if anyone is listening to this or knows anyone who might be, who might be interested in you know, working at a high growth startup with a whole lot of autonomy and a really interesting engineering challenge as well. I mean, particularly for engineers, a platform like NoLoco to help people build web apps without code is, you know, it's certainly ambitious. It's certainly challenging. So I think quite an exciting, you know, opportunity for someone to come in in the early days and help shape the platform. And I'm really excited to see where it goes in the coming years as well. But yeah, definitely an interesting opportunity from my biased perspective anyway. Myself as a nerd, this might be gibberish to some people that are listening uh, that are, are not technical, but like the, the tech stack you have in there being Node, React, GraphQL, Postgres, MongoDB, it's all stuff that developers like to use so it's yeah. it's not like you have the painful technical debt that you would be used to going if you go and join most companies my co-founder definitely made uh, yeah, good good kind of architecture decisions in the in the early days and yeah you know um i can't say i know much about the whole area i think i did a co-academy intensive course back in 2017 or something trying to learn a bit of code but yeah, besides kind of SQL and stuff, the whole kind of coding side would be a bit beyond me at the moment. Uh, it's not a skill you need right now when you have great people around you, though, which is the nice part. I think a lot of people tend to try and do everything, and it's just not the best use of anyone's time. No, definitely not. And I think if I could code as well, I was just thinking about this the other day, that like I'd probably get so swept up in just like fixing bugs or like doing little improvements and things that you could easily leave the whole business side of it and just like, be too kind of in the weeds and the product. So yeah, I think it definitely makes sense to have kind of complementary skills amongst your, your co-founders. Yeah, I, I love that because I see myself in that statement because I lose days and weeks when I'm like, I, I can solve this myself. And then I yeah. just put my head down and then I forget I haven't talked to anyone in a couple of weeks and go, oh yeah, there's other people here. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's not ideal when you're meant to be driving the ship forward and you, you've just been hiding somewhere. Yeah, no, definitely. That would be a trap, I'd say. But I think a lot of the, it's quite rare, I guess, we'd see like fully technical co-founder teams these days. Obviously, if you have someone that can wear many hats and they have those skills well, it's awesome. But yeah, it's, it's probably quite rare. Excellent. Do you have any advice that you think would be counterintuitive, for, especially from the product management? I always think a lot of people don't have that product skill. So I'm, I'm sure you have some great advice here. Yeah, one thing that came to mind, maybe I can come up with something on the product side in the next few minutes, but it's probably mostly around the kind of sales and growth. So I think particularly in the early days, you know, growth for a startup is everything. And you can be chasing sales and getting sales is just absolutely huge. But in the early days, you can accept or take on customers that actually don't make sense for you. That you, know, you find yourself bending over backwards to serve a customer that maybe is only paying you 50 quid a month or something. And really... It's more of a distraction and maybe they're not great to work with and you're just not enjoying it and it's not really moving the product or anything in the right direction. So you know, counterintuitively, I would say that to be 
disciplined about what kind of deals you accept and like the customers you take on in the early days because they can bring you in the wrong direction. Um, and that's very, very easy to happen. I guess that's linked to the product side as well. Then, you know, even the features and what we're looking at now in terms of some of the things we could build. So we could easily go down more kind of enterprise and maybe internal tooling route with, for example, the next database integration we're going to build is like a Postgres database integration with our platform, which will open up new doors for us. But very alternative, we could build out more like in-app payments, for example, which would be much more appealing to like startups and a bigger company would have absolutely no use for it. So Mm -hmm. on the product side, then you really have to think about which types of customers is this going to resonate with? Yeah. Overall, what kind of direction do you want to go in? And do you have any philosophies that you're using or systems you're using to figure out what are the things to build now, since you're just making those decisions saying, maybe we'll target startups rather than enterprise? What what frameworks or tools do you use to help your, you make that decision? Yeah, so what I'd say at the moment is that we aren't using any particular framework or anything right now. I'm sure in the future, we probably will adopt some kind of more rigorous process around these kind of things. At the moment, you know, it very much is a balance between what are some of the things our existing customers are asking for? What are the things that we think ourselves we would like to get done? So we have, you know, basically a high level roadmap that we made at the start of the year. And these are some things we would like to get done. And then it's just a challenge between the everyday kind of little improvements and fixes and things that your existing customers are looking for. And also trying to carve out the time and resources to make sure you're making headway towards the bigger improvements that ultimately could open new doors, new channels and new types of customers and a lot more business. So that's definitely a balance um, between trying to, you know, especially with a platform like ours, where our customers could be trying to pull us in a million different directions and want little niggly kind of improvements to feature X. Maybe it's just a very specific kind of particular user experience thing. Um, so that's definitely a challenge. But yeah, at the moment we certainly record whenever a customer or prospect requests a particular feature and that does help prioritize the kind of more day-to-day stuff as well nice yeah so i guess it's always listening to the market early on as well there's nothing else you can do it's the only thing you can do um, and take a few guesses along the way and hope they work out yeah exactly and i think there is the whole kind of building they will come and obviously you want to avoid that as much as possible and hopefully validate things in advance but yeah you do sometimes need to make those leaps. I'm sure there'd be many people who would kind of be in favor of that side of things. Obviously the whole lean startup movement and everything um, is great and to maybe encourage a bit more discipline in the kind of product development process. But yeah, sometimes you do have to make some leaps along the way as well. Yeah, as, a, as an early stage founder, you have to be scrappy as well. Like you can't just wait around for perfect either. It's just not feasible at all when your customers are oxygen in the sense of keeping this going. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think it's one thing that like, we definitely are trying to be as customer centric as possible and really, really responsive to our customers. And that's something that our customers particularly are pleased with, I would say, with our platform, maybe versus some other competitors in the space. And that quality of support is definitely something that you hear a lot of successful companies from Amazon to whoever else that kind of maybe not obsession I would say but just trying to be responsive reactive and always shipping as well so that product velocity is super important for us and our customers just love it that each week we're bashing out several features and some like some will just be smaller some be crowd pleasers that haven't necessarily been 
expected. But yeah, that between kind of customer support and product velocity as well, it's, it's two of the things we definitely uh, strive for. And it is showing off because the everything from the site, the app, everything, it looks gorgeous. It's stunning. It's amazing. I thought you had a, a big design team and everything really when I looked at it because it's it's a beautiful app. Like, And that's the app geek in me looking at it from the outside. I'm like, geez, they put a lot of work into making this look shit hot. <laughs> Yeah, and that is one of the things, yeah, again, very fortunate with my co-founder, Dara's design chops, if you like. But yeah, it is, I guess, a, let's say, complaint or, I don't know, a feeling, I guess, when you see some no-code developed websites and web apps that you know straight away, it's like, oh, it doesn't look great. You're like, it, it doesn't look very sharp. The design's a bit outdated. It just, you know, doesn't look like what you'd expect for some reason. And that's definitely something that I'd like to think with no code. It's very kind of modern, sleek very stylish in terms of the the sensible kind of default options that we have when it comes to like layouts and different kind of components as well that you can use to build your app yeah definitely definitely does look very good which is funny what's kind of pleasing on the eye definitely kind of track people and some people definitely have chosen no loco over other competitors for that reason as well but yeah certainly helps yeah i, I always tell people that if they can go consumer level when you're building any products because it's yeah. the same as eating if it looks good we want it you can, and you can hide a lot of nasty shit that's going on behind the scenes if it looks yeah. pretty and it's so funny as well yeah because you know we very often see when we so we have like a slack community uh, for our customers and having a slack community is great and uh, people and slack's actually a really good example of you know a b2b tool that has a consumer level experience but it's so funny that whenever you know, we launch some kind of UI improvement or like a nice new component or something. Those are the ones people go mad for. <laughs> like, it'll be something that's like relatively simple that my co-founders, oh, okay, like it did that up in you know, a couple of hours or something like a new kind of like pipeline element, for example, to help mo monitor what stage or status a particular record is in. And like, people just go mad for that kind of thing. So um, yeah, it is, it is funny. The, I guess the more visual something is, maybe the more pleasing um, it can be. Yeah, I, I, look, on my background, I, I before I went full stack, I was a UI developer and a web designer and things like that. So I nerd out on designs too much. So I would be absolutely one of those people that are just like, I'm not using this other one because this looks nicer. <laughs> That's So yeah. that would win me over. So <laughs> I think it's worth the work and the effort and it's clearly paying off now as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I agreed. I think I've probably annoyed you enough, but I'd love to get a couple more bits out of you and i always ask all my guests this what is your favorite book yes i'd say uh my favorite book would probably be creativity inc i'm not sure if you've read it it is the book written by uh, ed catmull so like one of the original co-founders of a pixar animation that was then obviously acquired by disney and yeah it's just about you know how they their journey with pixar really and talks through all the kind of classic animations from when they were developing toy story as the first animated computer animated uh, full movie to a lot of their kind of challenges along the way in terms of sustaining a culture of innovation that kind of creating that sense of i guess psychological safety and uh, fostering an environment of creativity within pixar so yeah definitely a very very interesting book i kind of reread it relatively recently nice i'm going to put that i haven't read it the only insight i have to pixar and that is reading steve jobs book so yeah i'll definitely put that on the list because pixar is awesome i i, I yeah. grew up my favorite toy was Woody growing up. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. No, I loved it. And it's funny, I think, because uh, what Steve Jobs, because he was basically, yeah, you probably know the story, but he, he basically, I think, owned a very large proportion of um, mm -hmm. Pixar before it sold to Disney, if not most, like 
probably the full thing. And yeah, one of the things I think he'd said to the co-founders was even comparing it to like Apple, for example, he knew that a lot of the Apple's products, despite how amazing they are, they'll ultimately end up in a landfill. Whereas what Pixar was creating with their animation animated movies was timeless. Like they'll it'll last forever. So yeah, I think he definitely respected what they were doing there for sure. Yeah, I think he spent most of his personal money and nearly all of it that he got out of Apple on this. And I think when Pixar sold, he made more than he did on Apple as well for that because he owned so much of that company. So it's crazy. I think a lot of people don't even know that he was heavily involved in Pixar. He heavily involved yeah. financially anyway. Yeah. I don't know if he, he did the usual Steve Jobs attitude of going in and telling people to do it his way. I think that was one of the yeah. only things he stepped back and said, I don't understand you do it. I think that's exactly it. Yeah, I think so. That's apparently how it went. And apparently, though, he did give a very useful insight, some comments and things when like reviewing movies and all that, but like from a you know kind of respectful, faraway standpoint. Uh, but yeah, that's a really great book. I would recommend reading that. Yeah, um, definitely going to. That's going to be added to my list. I'm surrounded. I have books everywhere. There's in my kitchen, in my sitting room and bookshelf behind me. I I, I have two hobbies, reading books and buying books. Uh, so <laughs> buying books definitely is more than my reading habit for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I do uh, feel like, yeah, whenever you're in a bookshop, you're kind of just greedy for that knowledge and information. Just They're very enticing for some reason. It's probably like looking at the sea on a warm day. You know, you just kind of want want to get stuck into it. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. not enough time, too many books. Um, it's great. Obviously, No Loco is the best piece of software ever, but... What is another piece of software that you're using every day that you'd be lost without? Yeah, so I'd say probably the one, the tool that comes to mind is actually Loom, as I'm sure you've probably used it mm. before now, um, but we just find it so helpful. So it basically allows you to really, really easily record, like screen record and screen, uh, record your screen basically. So particularly when it comes to, you know, product and maybe investigating customer issues or trying to reproduce something and showing it to the team, et cetera. It's just so useful. And it's funny, just one of these uh, products that made what seems like an obvious leap, but before I guess you'd, you know, record a video using QuickTime or some desktop app basically, and then you'd have to download it and then maybe upload it to YouTube or something that would take, you know, I'd easily eat up at least maybe 10 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever amount of time of your day. Whereas Loom just does it all in kind of one go, then makes it accessible via the browser. So anyone can, who has the link can watch the video if you just record it. So yeah, that's been brilliant. And we use that, yeah, definitely pretty much every day. That's such a good tool for remote working as well, because yeah. I use that with offshore designers a lot of the time. So for some of the things I make for just articles and whatever else, and I usually have designers involved. And I, I just love using Loom because I can write like a paragraph of what I want and then just turn on Loom and go to like dribble and say, I want something kind of like this. I like this part. I like this part. I don't like this. And it's something I just could not explain by typing to somebody anyway. So I, I use that for just clarity on what I'm expecting. Yeah, no, it's, it's brilliant. And between kind of reproducing things and like bugs and that kind of thing, but also in the early days, I remember I definitely would have, you know, if maybe I helped build app for a prospective customer or something you know I'd definitely just record quickly and it's super personalized then you're saying like hey here I am I've just built this for you you know it's amazing customer service then as well so yeah no it's, it's a brilliant tool again what I kind of love about it it's so simple like it's yeah just a really really simple thing it's not overly complicated in any way uh, and yeah just very very val valuable love it so where can people find you in the wild? Where, where should they follow you? 
where are you most active? Yeah, sure. So, um, well, in terms of NoLoco, so our website is noloco.io. And on Twitter and LinkedIn, we're at nolocohq is our handle there. Personally, you can find me um, at Simon Alex Curran on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Um, I'd be most active probably on LinkedIn myself personally, um, not as active on Twitter. I'd, I'd love to be one of these people that, you know, um, just keeps all these profiles up to date and things all the time and posting every day. But I find that I, I'm not, unfortunately, um, at this point. But it is something I'm meaning, meaning to, you know, do more because I think it actually is probably very helpful when a, a founder is promoting their business a lot and their kind of personal profiles. And yeah, as mentioned, we are hiring as well. So from our website, you can see some of the open job roles and positions and specifically looking for uh, software engineers at the moment as well. Love it. Yeah, I definitely think you should be everywhere because Simon, your your passion and energy about what you're doing and everything else just comes true when you're talking to you. People can't see I see you obviously in the podcast, but I'm looking at you. Just <laughs> We're not just weirdly having a phone call here for the illusion at home. And so yeah, if you can get out there, I think you'll easily boost the business as well because people buy from people. That's it. Yeah, no, it's 100% true. I bet the people buying from people stuff definitely is something that I've learned in sales as well. That, yeah, if you can get on a call, and sometimes people even are very impressed when I turn up on a call with them. They're like, wow, like the co founder of the business. And they probably have no idea that we're a four person company right now. But yeah, it definitely, definitely is true that people buy from people. And not to go on too much of a tangent, one of the funniest things and what really made me figure that out the easy way was. I used to, when I was running Kodu as a software consultancy, for fun on Fridays, I used to get drunk and build stuff on a LinkedIn stream. And so many people got in touch with me. They were like, hey, if you can do this drunk, you must be really good sober. <laughs> and, they would, and they would come along and I got a, a lot of business that way. It was bizarre because they were just like, you're, you're not hiding anything. I like that. Let's, let's do business together. That's very cool. <laughs> I thought it was like LinkedIn suicide to be doing that. But again, it's just what I thought would be fun. Right, Simon, it was great to chat to you. And hopefully we'll see No Loco even more in the future. It's it's booming. We'll have lots of new developers and everything else. And uh, maybe we'll check in again in the future. We found out before the call as well that we're nearly neighbors. So I'll definitely be talking to you out in the real wild as well. Yeah, 100%. And really appreciate you having me on the podcast, Niall. And yeah, thanks. Thanks a million. It's great. Uh, great fun. If you enjoyed this episode, I have a little favor to ask. If you could leave the podcast a kind review, it would really help the show out. It appeases the algorithm gods and helps me reach new people, so I really appreciate it. And until next time, my beautiful friends, keep learning and keep growing.